So approximately 36,000 Verizon workers are striking this week, which leads Verizon subscribers like me to say, well, were there ever Verizon workers? But apparently they're led by Communication Workers of America's one union and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the IBEW, another union. Here's what they demand. They think that Verizon has been hiring workers from abroad. They want them to stop that. And outsourcing to lower wage contractors. They want them to stop that. Shutting down call centers and shipping them to India. They want to stop that. And requiring technicians to travel. They also complain that Verizon has not expanded its Fios service, which is sort of weird and ironic if you consider that these workers would presumably prefer that Verizon pay them more for less work, but still have enough money left over to build more infrastructure. Verizon apparently has a Scrooge McDuck money bin hidden somewhere in New York City, and its board members swim in it daily while quacking and chortling over mass layoffs of Americans. So what does that mean? Well, naturally, Senator Bernie Sanders, socialist of Lundbagia, descended on the strikers to inform them, well, constantly playing the airbongos, that Verizon was out to screw them because Verizon is evil. He said, they're going on strike because they refuse to be beaten down by a greedy corporation who could care less about them or the people of this country. All they want is more and more profit. It doesn't matter what happens to their employees or the people in America. They want to cut benefits for their employees. They want to throw American workers out on the streets. And let me tell you, back in the day, I used to play a great game of stickball. Bernie Sanders does not understand business. He doesn't understand the economy. And neither do his supporters. Workers who are striking because they want more money are just as greedy as members of the board of Verizon and indeed almost as greedy as Bernie Sanders himself because he wants to steal everybody's money by utilizing the power of the government gun. Here's the thing. Greed alone doesn't make you rich. We're all greedy. Very few of us, I am, but very few of us are rich. Voluntary transactions make you rich. Not just voluntary transactions, adding information to the economy. Profits, you know, these evil, evil profits, they're actually rewards for improving the lives of others. The more your skill set improves other people's lives, the more you profit. Economist George Gilder has a brand new book out, and it's really good. Uh, I talked about it a little bit earlier this week. He explains well why the left fails to understand how profit works. It's not merely about engaging in transactions with other people. It's also about adding information to the economy. So his book is called The Scandal of Money, and here's what Gilder writes. He says, quote, Growth in wealth stems not from an efflorescence of self-interest, meaning a surplus of self-interest or greed, but from the progress of learning accomplished by entrepreneurs conducting falsifiable experiments of enterprise, their outcomes measurable by reliable money. Entrepreneurs who conduct successful experiments keep their winnings. Thus, they can extend their success into the future. Resources gravitate to those best able to use and expand them. In other words, if you add information to the system, think of the economy as a giant information system. There's just lots of information floating around. New information gives you an advantage, just like in a poker game, right? And if you do that, you ought to be rewarded for that because this is called justice. Those who do this repeatedly ought to reap the benefits. And the, what about the middle class, the workers? Well, those who work for companies like Verizon, they reap rewards from taking part in distributing that information by their labor. Wall Street reaps rewards of investing in people who add the information. Here's how Gilder puts it. He says, without the synergistic triad of invention, investment, and distribution, Silicon Valley, invention, Wall Street, investment, and Main Street, distribution, the middle class decays. Now, here's the problem. Government involvement in this particular system destroys, destroys the ability to add information by changing incentives to benefit the insiders. Wall Street has a corrupt relationship with Washington, D.C. That means they have more incentive to trade currency with the federal government and play with arbitrage than to invest in risky businesses, adding information to the system. 
Silicon Valley, their desire to protect their winnings lead them to lobby to change the rules so nobody else can get in. And the middle class gets left out in the cold and then thinks it's Wall Street's and Silicon Valley Street. Their fault. Hence, Bernie Sanders. So Sanders comes along and he blames Silicon Valley and Wall Street. But Sanders' economic policy, it's like injecting yourself with Ebola virus to cure cancer. The result is death. And you can't revivify the middle class by killing the people who generate that middle class. You can only revivify the middle class by getting rid of politicians like Sanders, who stands in the way of that revivification in the name of an unjust system of stealing profits based on their own perverse brand of morally deficient greed. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is the Ben Shapiro. Tend to demonize people who don't care about your feelings. Folks, if you fear what Donald Trump would do as president or Hillary Clinton would do as president or Bernie Sanders would do as president, you need to stop on by our friends over at Hillsdale College. Hillsdale College, obviously a great place to send your kid to college. I've been recommending it for literally years. But Hillsdale College is for more than just the students. It's also for parents and adults and people who aren't at Hillsdale College to learn about things like the power of the presidency and what the president is supposed to do, what he's not supposed to do. Too many presidents think they are actually kings combining within them the unique capacity to unite judicial function and executive function and legislative function. It's not what the presidency was designed to do. It's not what the Constitution was designed to do. So there's a brand new course over at Hillsdale College, and it's called Presidency and the Constitution. You can go at hillsdale.edu slash Ben, hillsdale.edu slash Ben. Go get a free course, register for it, it comes to your inbox, and, uh, and it is great. They do a wonderful job. So that's hillsdale.edu slash Ben. Know your Constitution better. Okay, so we begin today with, as we said, Bernie Sanders. And we have the man in the decayed withering flesh. We don't actually have to have me just do my impression of Bernie Sanders. Here is Bernie Sanders, or an extra from The Walking Dead, one of the two, talking about why people who strike against big companies without any real rationale, the companies are not screwing them, the companies are just offering them something that the workers don't want. Here's Bernie Sanders explaining how he thinks capitalism works, and it's just, it's ignorance on stilts. And I was in Buffalo yesterday talking to employees of Verizon who are going out on strike. And that is a very difficult decision. Nobody goes out on strike without a lot of thought because there's a lot of pain going on in families when you don't have any income coming in. But they're going out on strike because they refuse to be beaten down by a greedy corporation who could care less about them or the people of this country. All they want is more and more profit, and it doesn't matter what happens to their employees or people in America. This is what they want to do. They want to cut benefits for their employees. They want to throw American workers out on the street do they really want to throw American workers out on the street? How then are they going to operate? Like, really, if they have no workers, how do they operate? No, they don't want to throw American workers out on the street. But it's, it's always, for, for Sanders and his ilk, it's always constantly about the intent of the people who are running the companies. Right? They, they, they have bad intent. This is what the left always does. It's these moral, these moral arguments, right? It's not that these people are making economic decisions that benefit the company. It's not that they are bringing out new products, which involves risk, and sometimes the risk doesn't work out and they have to fire people. It's not any of that. It's greed. It's greed. These people, I, I've always asked this to, to Democrats and socialists like Bernie Sanders, and that is, when did the small business person who you say you like become the evil, greedy businessman you say you hate? 
Like, how many employees did it take before that person became the bad guy? Like, when he was at, most people who are employers were not at one point employers. Most of them were children, it turns out. At what point in their life did they all turn into greedy, evil capitalists? What, when did this grand moral transition take place where they became people who just deliberately want to hurt other people? And the answer is they didn't. That's not their intent. If you've ever met somebody who runs a business, people who run businesses, by and large, feel for their employees and want to work with them. And they want to secure good employees in slots for a very long period of time. It's hard to find good people. But Bernie Sanders doesn't believe that way because his vision of the economy is that if there were no bad intent, if we were all angels, if everybody had great intent like Bernie Sanders, who's never, by the way, hired a person in his life outside of the government, if, if, you, were, if, if, if you had good intent like Bernie Sanders, then you would just hire people for, for just the hell of it and presumably pay them until they die. That's called socialism. Right? And if we won't do it, the government has to because the government is above terrible things like market inefficiencies and market prices. They can just force you. with They can take your property and they can do what they want. But their intent is good, you see. Their intent is good because they're not subject to the evils of profit. Profits, all profits are, folks, are rewards for adding information to the system. All profits are, are you added something. You were a value add, and that value add represents your profit in life. And the more value you add to other people's lives, more information you add to the information system, the better off you're going to be. By the way, if you actually want a system that rewards adding information to the system and, and rewards good activity, you need to have a stable and steady government regulatory system. You can't have it going up and down. You can't have inflation going up and inflation going down and the government controlling everything. There's too much play in the system. The way that Gilder puts it, and it is a good book, the, the, his, his new book, the way that he puts it, and he's put it like this in the past in his book, Knowledge and Power, is that think of, think of the economy like a phone line. And it's a, it's a phone line. You need a quiet phone line in order for you to convey additional information over the phone. If every so often you, get, you run into a staticky patch, you lose information, right? that's bad. If you lose information... The conversation is not as efficient, and the people who benefit from the conversation can't get the benefit. The phone line is government regulation and monetary policy. It's got to be steady. It's not supposed to go up and down. You don't want the phone company screwing with your call. You don't want the phone company getting in there and saying, I, I think this part of the conversation ought to be louder, and this conversation ought to be softer. All you want is a steady line, and then you can add information. Right? That's how the economy ought to work. Sanders wants to go in and just cut off the call. Right? He wants to say no more calling. The calling itself is bad. It's made by greedy people. And so the government's job is to cut off the call and then to go to your house, take all your information, go to the other guy's house, take all his information, put it in a central clearinghouse, and redistribute it randomly across the society. That's silly towns. Unfortunately, it now spans both sides of the aisle. So Donald Trump's economic policy actually looks a fair bit like Bernie Sanders' economic policy, not in terms of domestic taxation, but certainly in terms of tariffs. Trump's senior policy advisor is a guy I know, Stephen Miller, very nice guy. Stephen Miller and I go back probably 20 years peripherally. He used to call into Larry Elder's show uh, back when we were both kids, and people used to mix us up because we were the two young guys who were on Larry Elder's show. Now he works for Donald Trump, which is a sad decline for, for, for a smart guy. Here's Stephen Miller talking about Donald Trump's policy. You'll notice it looks a lot like, like Bernie Sanders' policy in a lot of ways. So you know, we talked about policy and about Mr. Trump's campaign. If you look at Mr. Trump's original announcement speech, uh, in June when he declared, there was three big areas where he outlined a new direction for the GOP based on where the voters are. Right. Immigration, Immigration trade, trade, and foreign policy. And, foreign policy. and, right. and, 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 so, and ISIS and stuff. Yeah. And so, but the, so the foreign policy piece, right, is um, obviously a more 
national interest, less interventionist foreign policy, and the trade policy keeping jobs here in America. And then the immigration piece, which we're talking about now, these are three areas where the voters are, but the politicians haven't been. I dig it. How do you do so, it? How do you, how so, do you forbid people from wiring so money across the key across thing to understand is that states. we have something in place now okay. called E-Verify. Oh, of course. And so we can check like that if you're here legally or illegally. Right. So you apply that same principle right. to illegal immigrants, illegal immigrants in this case, right? It would not be legal Mexican workers sending money back home. Okay. Illegal immigrants who are then engaging in an inherently illegal act because they are wiring funds that were derived against the laws of the United States. So, this so it's is something a furtherance he, of a criminal act. So this is something that he can, this is an authority right. that he has without right. congressional exactly. action. But would he need extra funds to do it? No. It would more than pay for itself because of the billions and billions of dollars we're talking about here. And so, again, okay, Miller continues the wages along these lines, but there's a, there's a certain, look, I, I don't disagree with the idea that we could leverage Mexico, the, the government of Mexico, by cutting off remittances from illegal aliens back to Mexico. But, the, but the, the trade policies of Donald Trump are nativist in intent, right? The idea is you're in America, therefore a different rule applies to you than applies to everybody else. In the rest of the world and all across the economy, voluntary transactions are the rule. Here we're going to say that if you are a, a person living in America, you cannot take a job, for example. Like, let's say you're an, you're an American and you're living abroad in India. You can't take a job that you want to take in India for less pay than you would take in the United States and will punish the company that tries to make that payment. This sort of stuff actually is economic fascism. So once you get to the point where the, the, the fascism is not just a philosophy of totalitarianism and the government controlling your life, it's economic fascism. It's the idea that the government top down is going to control how the economy works in the name of fairness, in the name of the community. The word fascism comes from the word fascisti in, in Italian. It was invented by Mussolini. And the fascist movement, what, what fascisti means is a bundle of sticks. That's really what fascisti means, okay? It's a bundle of sticks, for those who care about origins of words. And the idea is the bundle of sticks is stronger than any single stick, right? If you bundle of sticks, you try to break it, much harder than if you have a single stick and you try to break it. The idea is if you bundle together all of America into one economy and you have the government run it from the top down, we're all better off, except we're not, except we're not. And the only justification for forcing the sticks into a bundle is by saying that the sticks themselves are immoral, but somehow if you bundle them all together and control them and, and, the, and then wield them, the person wielding this new bundle of sticks, this new club, is more moral, and that, that person is, is the government. People ask why I've termed Donald Trump a leftist. This is one of the reasons I've termed Trump a leftist. Trump believes that the government's top-down involvement in your life to compel behavior that you have no duty, no duty to engage in, that that is a good thing. This is the, leftism is really about this. Okay, here's, you don't believe in freedom. Here's, here's the freedom test. Okay, here's the freedom test, left and right, for everyone, freedom test. Somebody does something with which you disagree, but they have no duty to anyone else not to do it. Do you use the government to stop them? Right? Do you use the government to stop them? This is the test of freedom. The test of freedom is somebody thinks something you don't like, but they have no duty to somebody else not to think that way. Do you punish them using the government? Right? They, somebody does something that you don't like. For example, you have a restaurateur and he refuses to serve a gay person or a black person, but he has no duty to serve anybody. He can serve whoever he wants. Do you use the government to compel the service? If the answer is yes, then you are a fascist. If the answer is no, then you actually believe in freedom. You don't get to compel behavior from somebody they have no duty to participate in in the first place. Okay, and this is true in the economy. And the, the government does not have the power to compel Verizon to hire people at a price they don't want to pay. It's true on trade. The government does not have the power to compel people not to engage in free and voluntary transactions with people overseas or in contracts with workers. 
And it's true across the board. And one of the one of the things that's that's truly devastating is to watch as all across the political spectrum, this definition of freedom is 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 dumped under the bus. That is dumped under the bus. And it's dumped under the bus largely on the basis of feelings. It's that, that people feel like they are owed something. People feel like they are owed something. And you can see it among the Democrats. Charlie Rangel, who is uh, you know, a congressperson from New York, deeply ensconced in, in serious corruption. Charlie Rangel says that the GOP can't be trusted. Why? Because like Bernie Sanders, they don't care about your feelings. Now, I don't have a duty to care about your feelings. Right? I don't. I don't have a duty to hire you. I don't have a duty to pay taxes to pay for all your services. I don't have a duty to do any of these things. Charlie Rangel thinks it is literally un-American, un-American for me to disregard other people's feelings. And, and on this, he and Sanders are on the same score, right? Remember, Sanders is, is indicting corporations based on they don't feel enough for their workers. And presumably the feelings now lead them to do things, but it's the feeling that bothers him. Same thing with Charlie Rangel. Here's Rangel explaining why he hates Republicans. I think Trump has destroyed the Republican Party, and I've talked with some of my friends, and they got to pick up the pieces after this election, and maybe... And they'll get rid of the anti-racial, anti-immigrant and pro-Dixiecrat uh, uh, theme and try to get back to the party of Lincoln. And, yeah. and because yeah. we do need a serious party. Do you, but, do, you think, uh, uh, do you think Trump's a racist or just playing one on TV? I have no idea subjectively, but I do know one thing. Uh, Trump will do what has to be done in order to say or to do anything in order to continue to be on TV. And sometimes uh, people uh, who don't care about their reputation, you know, it's easy. You should know better than anyone else. If you want to get on TV, David Dell, you can do it. You <laughs> yeah, well, and, yeah. and you don't have to say, are you sincere? No, I made up my mind. I'm going to get on TV. I'm going to say something, I'll get me on TV. And when you do that and don't mind hurting people, I don't really think it matters whether you're racist or not. If you have a complete disregard of other people's feeling, uh, that's wrong. It's un-American. And ultimately, the party in the country pays for that. And there's, oh, the as a New Yorker. there's the punchline. If you disregard people's feelings, that's un-American. And, and the left is perfectly willing to, to crack down using the power of government. Donald Trump is too, to, to a lesser extent, but, but still along the same lines. Here are just a few indicators that the left truly is willing to crack down on people for not obeying them. And that this totalitarian tendency that you see from Bernie Sanders on the economy to Donald Trump on trade, that this is now spanning the gamut. West Hollywood came out today. The mayor of West Hollywood, West Hollywood came out. The mayor of West Hollywood, Lindsay Horvath, right? She came out today and she said she doesn't like Donald Trump. Well, neither do I. The difference is I wouldn't ban Donald Trump from speaking in my city. She wants to. She went on CNN and she said West Hollywood is a very diverse community. We're over 40% LGBT, which, by the way, should be a note to everybody, right? Even West Hollywood, which is heavily gay, is still minority gay, but that's a side point. Say so we have Russian-speaking immigrants, some of whom are concentration camp survivors. We're the first declared pro-choice city in America, so their tolerance does not extend to unborn children. They say our city is very diverse. We're very open. We're very welcoming. That's the kind of community we want to be. And so she says that she wants to ban Donald Trump. Donald Trump can't come into her city. She says the campaign has gone beyond its right to express a political point of view or policy differences which we all have to greater or lesser degrees, the hate speech and implicit calls to violence coming from Trump and his campaign have no place in any community in our country. Right, so the left is willing to use government force to shut down views that it doesn't like, even though Trump has no duty to make you feel good about yourself. He doesn't have a duty to make your, you feel good about yourself. Even worse, state attorney generals around the country, 
at least 17 of them, 15 state attorney generals plus D.C. and I think Virgin Islands, they're now attempting to prosecute ExxonMobil. Why? Because ExxonMobil gives money to places like the Heartland Institute, which are research institutions that disagree with the idea of anthropogenic global warming, that it's our fault that the world is getting warmer and that we know exactly how much warmer it's going to get, and so we have to devastate the economy to do this. So they don't like what people are saying about global warming, so now they're going to try and shut down ExxonMobil on the basis of it. This is fascism. You've got all these people on the left who have, who have, we talked about this earlier, pushed travel bans to states like North Carolina and Mississippi because these states stand up for religious freedom. This is fascism. And they're explicitly pursuing this sort of stuff, these sorts of regulations to crack down on, on religious practice because they don't like the religious practice. We talked about John Kasich basically saying this yesterday. All of this is indicative of an increasing culture of intolerance, hate, and totalitarianism when it comes to the use of government to crack down on people that you disagree with or that take actions that, that with which you, that, that you find abhorrent. You know, I, I'm, act, I'm asked very often when I, when I visit college campuses, how do I feel about decriminalization of pot, right? This is one of the questions I get from college students because a disproportionate number of them are lazy losers who smoke pot. And, and, what, I, and what I always say is I'm for decriminalization of pot because I think smoking pot is gross. I think people who smoke pot are yucky, but it's none of my business. I don't have a duty. They, they have no duty to me not to smoke pot. They don't. They have a duty not to go out and hit somebody with a car. That's why we have DUI books, uh, DUI laws on the books. But they don't have any duty not to smoke pot. Just like nobody has a duty not to drink. Right? You don't have a duty to do, so It's none of my business. This is the test of freedom. The test of freedom is do you accept that somebody can do things you don't like, but they have no duty to do otherwise, and still say, okay, well, that's freedom. If the answer is no, then you're not in favor of freedom. You're in favor of a totalitarian rule. Okay, well, speaking of totalitarian rule, if you're concerned about the federal government and various corporations attempting to grab your private information from your email and use it you know, less, less overtly for marketing, but more overtly when the government grabs your info, supposedly for security reasons, and you're, you're concerned about that, you need to go to our friends at reaganprivacy.com. You want an email address, and it's, that, that's your name at reagan.com. You want it for a couple of reasons. First, you get to associate with Reagan, which is cool. Second, they pledge and they vow and they have made clear, they promise you that they are not going to reveal one iota of your email information to the government or to marketers. This is all, it's all going to remain confidential forever. So if you want to get a secure email, this is the way to do it. It's reaganprivacy.com. You go to reaganprivacy.com. You sign up right now. You get two months for free. And again, it'll be your name at reagan.com, which is pretty cool. Okay, so moving on from the democratic intolerance and, and their, their reliance on the emotional appeal. They, again, this reliance on the idea that all of their enemies, as Bernie Sanders puts it, are greedy and terrible and they're trying to hurt people. Moving on from that to the right side of the aisle, Donald Trump is basically saying sort of the same thing. He's saying, I should have a different set of rules that applies to me because my feelings have been hurt. First of all, Donald Trump says he will get to 1237. He says he thinks that he's going to get to a majority of the delegates. Here is the Trumpster explaining himself. I think I'll get to 1237. I think we're, you know, we're going to do very well in New York. And as I said before, some of the states around that we're, we're going to be in next, I think we should do really well in California. Uh, I think we'll get to the 1237. Look, this has been an amazing process. He thinks he's going to get to the 1237, let me tell you. And it'll be, it'll be huge when he gets there. And then he says, but, but it's not enough for him to say that. Like, that'd be okay, right? That's his job to get to 1237. Then... He goes full social justice warrior, says the GOP should just be ashamed of themselves. They should be ashamed. They're trying to screw me, sounding very much like folks on the left who claim that 
equal rules that apply to everyone, have disparate impact, and therefore are bad. Here is Donald Trump explaining why it is that rules that apply to him, that apply to Cruz, that apply to Rubio, that apply to Kasich, that apply to all the peoples, right? And they're all, these, these rules are evenly applied across the system. It's not like Ted Cruz got a magic master key, and now he gets to just turn that key and he wins delegates. Here's Donald Trump explaining that the GOP should be ashamed of themselves. This is a dirty trick, and I'll tell you what. The RNC, the Republican National Committee, they should be ashamed of themselves for allowing this kind of crap to happen. I can tell you that. They should be ashamed of themselves. Frankly, he can tell you that. Frankly, he can tell you that. I, like, I do like the hand motions. It's, it's, I'm noticing this maybe for the first time. It's, it's always index finger up and the other fingers down, or index finger down and the other fingers up. It's, it's, it's kind of an odd quirk, but who cares? I mean, it's hard to see his fingers anyway. They're so small. But in any case, the RNC chairman, Reince Priebus, he, he finally has had enough of this, and he says to Trump, you know, you really need to cut this crap out. He tweeted, nomination process known for a year and beyond. It's the responsibility of the campaigns to understand it. Complaints now? Give us all a break. But, but Trump won't give people a break because, again, he's going to claim that they didn't care sufficiently about him and his voters. And the reason that this has been allowed to, to flourish so much is because Trump is campaigning against the same people who a lot of Republicans and conservatives feel like have been ignoring them for literally years at a time. We feel like you ignored us on policy. You went and signed bad deals with Obama. You didn't keep any of the promises you said you were going to keep. And so when Trump says, here's another promise they're not keeping, that they would be fair to me, a lot of people kind of throw up their hands. Oh, it, it must be unfair. Well, no, this, this actually wasn't unfair. You're just kind of incompetent. Anderson Cooper on CNN points this out to Trump. He says, you, know, you basically just got outplayed, didn't you? You disagree with the process as it was in Colorado, but you had months to prepare. Does it say something, and your critics say, it says something about your leadership ability. If you, for somebody who touts himself as somebody who's an organizational genius, who's created this amazing business organization, that you couldn't create an organization on the ground okay. that could be it, Ted Cruz's organization. Number one, I started with a million-dollar loan. I built a $10 billion company. It's a phenomenal company. Right, but it's a business Let me organization just tell you, the same as a right, political same, organization. Well, a lot of similarities. In this case... I've won most of it. I mean, you know, you can say about what about organization? Well, how come I'm leading by hundreds of delegates? How come I'm leading by millions of votes? Remember this. I was supposed to lose South Carolina. I was supposed to lose to Bush, uh, New Hampshire. I was supposed to lose the entire South. I won virtually everything in the South. I look at your board. I mean, it's all my color, whatever that color yeah. is. I guess it's sort of like semi-purple. Not the nicest color, but that's okay. I don't complain about it. But, but I won the entire South. I won Florida. I could say they have a bad organization because Cruz was supposed to win Alabama, Arkansas. He was supposed to win Kentucky. He lost all of them. He I lost wanna... Florida. The point is, I mean, if, if you talk about that, I can say, well, if my organization's not so good, how come I've won many more states than him and millions of votes? Okay, okay. first of all, he, he knows for a fact that these are two different types of organizations. There's the organization on the ground. Cruz does have a superior organization on the ground. And then there is the Donald Trump media organization, which has been run all the way through. I mean, the fact is that Donald Trump has dominated the media coverage for good reason. He's much more interesting than the other candidates. Also, this is an absolute clown show at this point. I mean, he's just... He's more entertaining. Uh, if, if you have a choice as a host to cover Trump or cover Cruz, you're going to cover Trump. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. It's like saying, who would you rather cover, Kim Kardashian or Ben Stein? Right? Obviously, Kim Kardashian. Obviously, Kim Kardashian. So, here, so now, here's, what, here's what, what's happening. So the Rules Committee is trying to determine what rules they are going to set for the actual convention. So 
as Drew mentioned, as Andrew Clavin mentioned on his podcast yesterday, there's a whole other set of rules that can now be put in place right before the RNC to, to help determine who gets the actual nomination, right? It's, it's determined in 2012 for the 2012 convention. It's determined this time around for 2016, a few weeks before the convention. One of the rules committee members was, was on television talking about how this is going to work. And he said, if Trump hits 1,100, he doesn't have to get to 1,237. If he hits 1,100 delegates, then he could still win the nomination. He explains how this works. If Donald Trump exceeds 1,100 votes, he will become the nominee, even though he may not have 1,237. If he gets less than 1,000 delegates, then I think we're looking at a contested convention that could go on for many, many days. And then in the middle, there's that gray area between 1,000 and 1,100. And that's where the unbound delegates or the delegates that have been released by other candidates come into play to see if there are enough of those to get either Cruz or Trump over the finish line. So he says, basically, Trump can come up a little bit short, but he will still win the nomination. The reason he says this is because the formal delegate counts do not include unbound delegates from states like Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania has 54 delegates. None of those are bound, right? They, no matter how Pennsylvania votes, the delegates can vote however they want. But really, if Trump wins Pennsylvania, those delegates are going to vote for Trump. So you have to include in this count all of the various delegates who are leaning Trump, even if they're unbound. But I don't think this is exactly correct. I think that there's enough anti-Trump sentiment inside the GOP that if he comes up even one vote short of 1237 when you include all the informal delegates, there's not going to be a mass groundswell to give Trump the nomination. The reason there's not going to be a mass groundswell, and there was an argument that there should be, right? There's an argument that the guy who's leading in the clubhouse should at least get the benefit of the doubt. The reason there's not going to be is because Donald Trump legitimately has no self-control. He's never been told no. He's a child. And, and you could see it last night. Donald Trump talked about how he handles Twitter. And Trump's Twitter feed has been half of his controversy this cycle. He can't stay away from Twitter. He he pounds on it with his with his two tiny index fingers and he and he comes up with some of the dumbest things ever. He retweets silly things about Heidi Cruz and he retweets from white supremacist neo-Nazi accounts and he he explains how he handles Twitter on CNN. This is disquieting to delegates. This is not the sort of stuff that's going to draw delegates to your side. It is a modern method of communication and you know when I have 16 or 17 million people when you add it up, uh, it gives me a big advantage Do you over people. All that, your own tweets, uh, and, and when somebody's I, I retweeted yes. from your account, you you've retweeted. I would say yes. Other than if we release some information, I have some people, Dan, and some other people that. Uh, will do it, but do you actually sit there type, or do you say something uh, and somebody else types? During the day, I'm in the office. I just shouted out to one of the young ladies who are tremendous. I have a tremendous office staff and uh, Meredith and some of the people that work for me, and I'll just shout it out and they'll do it. But during the evenings after seven o'clock or so, uh, I will always do it by myself. Well, did you ever want to say to him, put the, the mobile device down? I mean, that like <laughs> that it's 2 a.m. and you're I'm still tweeting. If he would only listen. I did many times, <laughs> and I just say, okay, do whatever you want. He's an adult. Right. He knows the consequence. And so she says, we don't, we, you know, he does what he wants, and I can't control him. Yeah, clearly he has no interest in what you have to say. I mean, you see him stand, sitting there next to her, and he's like, oh, is she done talking yet? Is she, is she done talking yet? Is she done? Is she finally finish her speaking? Because now I would like to say another thing, a thing that is very important. So, by the way, the, the, the Donald Trump-Heidi Cruz tweet, for those who are, who are wondering, I'm looking up right now when it was actually sent. That tweet was sent at 8.55 p.m. Right, so you hear him say right there that he sends these tweets, you know, the, he tells people to tweet things up until 7 p.m., and then he takes over his own Twitter account. He personally retweeted 
the Heidi Cruz tweet because this is who he is. And he has no self-control. And no one's going to control him. His family won't control him. His family says he doesn't need a Twitter intervention. Or there's nothing that, that makes us want to stop him. Here's, here's the Trump family explaining, no, 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 we don't, we're not going to intervene. I mean, his thing is his thing. I got to ask you guys, do you monitor your dad's social media? <laughs> Possible that. I have no idea what you're talking about, Andy. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, are there some days you wake up and you look at Twitter and you think, really? Uh, it kind of makes him the person he is, honestly. It's, it's, it's so great to not see the sound bites, the traditional politician sound bites that you read too often. I mean, he's so authentic. He writes the tweets himself. He doesn't have a team of hundreds and hundreds of people behind him, and I think that's actually what makes him the great candidate that he is. And more importantly, they're the not vetted. Tweets. The retweets. The retweets get the tweets. trouble. The tweets are fine. The retweets sometimes yeah. get a little bit shaky. <laughs> and, and they're not... And you look at Twitter and you think... Okay, and he continues along those lines, right? So bottom line is that, that when that his, his family's not going to stop him. They're not going to step in and stop him. I will say that it's, it's, uh, it is amazing when they, they have the Trump family on CNN. There are legitimate members from three separate families in that, in that crowd. I mean, that's not, that's not a normal family. That's a, that's a Colorado caucus. I mean, that's a, he's, got, he's got kids from three separate wives there all sitting there with it, well, at least his wife, and then he's got you know, kids from two other marriages who are, who are sitting there. Um, and, um, you know, the, the reason that, that Trump is going to have trouble at the convention is because people look at this and they say, there's no one here to tell him no. There's no one here to just say, Donald, calm it down. Please calm it down. Now, the reason Trump is doing well, on the other hand, is because of his opposition. All of Trump is driven by two facts. He's a guy who says stuff, and the people who oppose him are typically the people who the right looks at, and a lot of people, and a lot of Americans look at, and they say, we, we think you guys are just terrible. We think you guys are just awful. So John Kasich, right, is, is somebody who supposedly opposes Trump, uh, the, the man who looks like he ran his face through the wash twice. Uh, John Kasich, he opposes Trump. He says that Trump is unworthy of the presidency because he's pushing a path to darkness. I've stood on a stage and watched with amazement as candidates wallowed in the mud viciously attacked one another, called each other liars, and disparaged each other's character. Those who continuously push that type of behavior are not worthy of the office they are seeking. And, uh, and this kind of stuff makes me want to vote for Trump. Like, really, because, it's, because John Kasich standing there and lecturing us all about civility while he pushes the idea that I, as a religious person, have to sin because he wants me to sin— I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And it makes me look at Trump and go, okay, well, at least he's not that guy. At least he's not that douche. Right? I mean, that's, the, and that, that's so much of Trump's support comes from at least he's not that douche. Right? Really, like, he's, he's this kind of douche, but he isn't that kind of douche at least. And you, you get that feeling consistently. For, I mean, and, it's, and that, that could actually be the Trump campaign slogan. It could be Trump, not that kind of douche. Right? And, and that's, that's really, that's what's driving a lot of his support. For example, for exa to take another example. There's a, there's a guy named Mort Zuckerberg, and Mort Zuckerberg, or sorry, wrong Zuckerberg. There's Mark Zuckerberg, who runs Facebook. Mort Zuckerberg runs uh, the New York Daily News. Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook CEO, he goes after Donald Trump in the same vein. And again, remember, Trump 2016, not this kind of douche. Here is, here's Mark Zuckerberg. Against this idea that 
fearful voices calling for further walls or distancing people from anybody who would help. And often preach for help, expanding the version, reducing prayer, and in some cases, there are no more meaning than transformation. It takes courage to choose hope over faith. And if the world starts to turn it out, the entire community will just have to work even harder and burn people together. Okay, so there, there's there's Jesse Eisenberg talking about interconnectedness, um, and uh, and the part of this that's that's irritating is is I agree that Trump's policies suck. I, I I don't like a lot of them, but the idea that Donald Trump building a wall on the Mexican border is somehow the the great ill that's that's ridiculous to me. It's just it's 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 silly. And and you look at Zuckerberg and you say, well, at least he's not that guy. At least he's not that guy standing up there and jabbering about synergy and interconnectedness. You're like, okay, well, he's not Donald Trump, not that kind of douche. Meanwhile, in Laura Ingram, who's now become a big Donald Trump supporter, I don't know when she left her conservatism behind and swung toward the populist wing, but she always did, I think, have a sneaking fondness for sort of Pat Buchanan-type populism. Laura Ingram, she says that, that Trump's opponents are, are the worst people. They're, they're the people who are really bad. And listen to her description of Trump's opponents, and, and it's easy to understand why Trump has a certain level of support. I'm living in something called the real world where regular folks who feel like politics have has just cast them aside. They've been kicked around. They've been ridiculed. You read on the pages of National Review, these working people of the country are called meth heads, horrible fathers, angry, stupid crackers. That's how they're painted in the pages of conservative. Right. Okay. Media so, outlet. So this is so this is you know what what she says is how they're painted by National Review. Not entirely fair. I've read the piece she's referring to. It's Kevin Williamson's piece uh, about the the kind of white underclass support for for Donald Trump. He didn't say everybody who supports Donald Trump is a meth head or they're all crackers or they're all racist. He said there's a segment of Trump support that is some of these people who feel dispossessed and they they have a grievance culture they've created that really is not justified by policy in the United States. But Ingram is right that if you think that those are the people who oppose Trump, then again, you're going to back Donald Trump. You're going to back Donald Trump. The problem is that Donald Trump's supporters, if, if, his, if his campaign is not that kind of douche, right, then you still have to acknowledge that he is a kind of douche, right? He is a kind of douche. And here, here's the evidence, right? Here's Heidi Cruz. She was on last night with Megyn Kelly. And Heidi Cruz was being asked about that Donald Trump retweet where basically he said that, that Heidi Cruz is ugly and my wife is, is super smoking hot because she's a trophy wife and I bought her. So here, here's Megan. Recently, uh, Donald Trump sent out an unkind retweet about you comparing your appearance mm -hmm. unfavorably to that of his his wife, Melania Trump, who is a retired model. How did that retweet first come to your attention? Well, one great thing about me, Megan, is I don't tweet. So um, <laughs> I had an ability to completely ignore it. And, uh, um, you know, I think we have a pattern of behavior here that when Donald Trump is, is falling behind, you know, it's interesting the timing of that was right before Ted's sweep, sweeping victory in Utah. Yeah, but that's a dodge. I, I'm yeah. wondering whether, like, who told you about it and, and how it made you feel? You and Carly, my dear friend Carly and myself, have, have been um, the object of some of, of um, Donald's criticisms. But I will tell you, it, uh, I know why we're running. 
running this race, and it's not for Donald Trump. It is for the voters of this country. And when you have a husband who's standing by you that is so strong and so unflappable, it really gives me a lot of strength. And so I, I really have to honestly say, it didn't impact me um, in the least. I have one job on this campaign, and that is to get out and tell the voters who Ted Cruz is. And when telling the truth about who your husband is, is your job. It's pretty easy, and it's been great for our marriage. So because I don't tweet, because um, I know what my job is on the campaign, and because I know that every time the Trump campaign starts to lose, they throw in distractions, a personal destruction. Donald Trump, in his defense, he was upset because he felt that his wife had been hit in a super PAC ad that okay, featured so Melania. This conversation goes on, but the idea here is that, does Heidi Cruz look like a terrible person to you from this? Does she look like somebody who deserves to be hit with, well, you're not as hot as my wife? And is, is, is that really, so here's the note to Trump supporters. A lot of people who oppose Trump are people who make me angry too. Hey, Mark Zuckerberg makes me angry. I think Mark Zuckerberg is full of it. I think that he is a cultural lefty. I think he does want to destroy standards of morality and decency. Uh, I think that, that he wants to, in the name of multiculturalism and diversity, destroy Western values. I think that Mark Zuckerberg is that kind of fellow after benefiting from, from exactly the, the system that has been built on the back of, of the values of Western civilization. I, I don't like John Kasich. I mean, I literally do not mention John Kasich without also saying in all capital letters, oh, God, no, please, God, not John Kasich. That does not mean that your guy, the people that he opposes, two things can be true at once. These people can suck, and so can Trump. Right? These people can be bad people. They can be people who you don't want to side with. So can Donald Trump. Trump can be that kind of person, too. And I don't think that it's worthwhile falling into the trap of, I dislike all these people who are calling out Trump in the wrong ways, but and, and therefore, I'm now going to justify bad behavior by Trump on the other side. And I'm going to laugh along when his family says, oh, yeah, we can't control his Twitter. We think that's what makes him who he is. Well, it turns out that what makes you who you are is your actions and not just your opponents. Right? You can judge a man by his enemies. You can also judge a man by his actions. Right? These are the, and, and two things can be true at once. Your enemies can be bad, and you can also be bad. Stalin's enemy was Hitler. That didn't make Stalin a great guy. It made him a better guy than Hitler, but not by much. Okay. Time for some things I like and then some things I hate. So things I like, we're gonna, doing a lot of Brahms this week, but I felt like doing some music. It just calm everybody down a little bit. So this is my father's favorite piece of music, and it is truly magnificent. Uh, the picture you're seeing here is Emil Gilels, who's a famous pianist, Russian pianist, um, and uh, he's playing this version of the Brahms Piano Concerto Number no. 2 with Fritz Reiner, who's probably the greatest conductor, uh, certainly probably the 20th century. Uh, and, uh, and here is a little bit of Brahms Piano Concerto Number no. 2, magnificent piece of work. This, this recording is truly great. This is a great recording. You can see it on YouTube. Terrific. Brahms Piano Concerto number two, if you're looking for some solid listening. Just, ah, it's, it's glorious. It's glorious stuff. Okay, here's something else that I like from a completely different vein. So this New York police officer pulled somebody over, and, uh, and this, it was caught on tape. And here's what the police officer said, and then I'll tell you sort of what happened. 
Mayor de Blasio wants us to give out summonses. Okay? I understand, I understand. All right? I don't yeah, know if I, you voted for him or not. I don't live in the yeah. city. Yeah. I wouldn't have voted for him because yeah. this is what he wants. He wants us to give out summonses. I, I, feel good. I understand that. Job. Okay, so what happens here is that this police officer, uh, whose name is Joseph Spina, he, he pulled somebody over, he ticketed him, and then he blamed it on the mayor. He says, de Blasio wants us to do this. I wouldn't have voted for him. You voted for him. This is your problem. He has been suspended for conduct unbecoming an officer now. Because it's not like he did anything corrupt. He told people the reality. So they say that so the New York Post says he should have thought twice about venting, but he's telling uncomfortable truths. The fact is that the de Blasio uses traffic safety as his number one ticket item. It's, it's, it's what he actually cares about. Traffic tickets are up 20% from the same period last year. And basically, according to the, the Police Officers Association, his new program boils down to police officers enforcing traffic laws and subjecting New Yorkers to expensive summonses many cannot afford to pay. So good for the officer. I wish that, that more officers were doing this. It's, it's ridiculous how de Blasio has undercut his own police officers. And then as soon as the police officers speak up, then he hits him with the club. Right. As soon as the, so he, he'll say that the police officers are racially profiling his biracial son. And then when they say, we don't want you coming to our funerals, if we get shot in the line of duty because you're a bad guy who incentivizes that kind of behavior, then he says, well, that's politicization. Or he creates these programs. It's amazing. The same people who say that, that Bill Clinton put too many criminals in prison are fine with Bill de Blasio giving summonses to poor people that they can't pay. That they're fine with because Bill de Blasio is a communist. Okay. Now time for some things that I hate. So. There's a congresswoman, her name is Grace Meng, um, and I'm trying to remember, she, I guess she's from New York, figures, and she's from the 6th Congressional District in New York, and she tweeted out yesterday, because it was equal pay day, she, she tweeted out, quote, I've called on key house panels to help make feminine hygiene products more accessible. Hashtag menstruation matters. Okay, I agree, menstruation does matter. Without it occasionally, there wouldn't be any children. So I'm glad that women have cycles. Congratulations. Put that one on God. And ladies, I'm sorry, put that one on God. But the idea that we have to make feminine hygiene products more accessible, last I checked, they're pretty accessible. Where is the giant shortage of feminine hygiene products? As a husband, I have gone to the store multiple times and bought them myself. And it turns out you go down to local CVS, they are full up. They're just stocked. If aisles full of feminine hygiene products. And I'm, I'm missing the part where feminine hygiene products have gone in, in there's a great dearth of feminine hygiene products. I've, I've missed this part. I, I don't know. I, Lindsay, are you noticing this? No, Lindsay's not noticing this. Jonathan, are you, uh, Jonathan, I don't care whether you notice it. You're probably not shopping for that very often. You're married, so maybe you see it every so often. Okay, if your chief concern as a Democrat is making an extraordinarily cheap product even cheaper, maybe you should recognize that it's your own stupid policies that make them more expensive than, you, than they should be because of things like sales tax, Right? That's the reality. Right? Bernie Sanders is the kind of guy who would say, we don't need more feminine hygiene products. We need, why do we need 17 different types of tampons? Why are not two? It's excessive. We only need one type of tampon. And if you're the wrong size, well, just put two in there. Right? I mean, what, why exactly can't, can't it's, 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 but, but these are the same people who say we ought to make it free. It's just, it's, in, it's incredible. So they, they, they restrict the business. So it doesn't work. And then they make it, and then they say we have to tax the crap out of everybody else to make it free on the other end because they don't understand how economics works. Okay, other stupid things that happen that I hate. Bono, for no reason at all, no reason at all, he's testifying before a Senate subcommittee on terrorism. Bono. Bono, who, by the way, one of the great overrated musicians of our time. Bono testifying before the, the 
look at the picture of this guy. This guy is your expert on terrorism. And what he says about terrorism is even stupider. Wait till you hear this one. This is pretty solid. Comedy should be deployed. <laughs> because when, if you look at uh, National Socialism and Daesh and, and ISIL, this, this is the same thing. We've seen this before. We've seen this before. They're very vain. They've got all the signs up. They're really, it's, 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 it's show business. And the first people that um, the, 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 the Weimar, the, uh, the Adolf Hitler threw out of Germany were the Dadas and the Surrealists. It's like you speak violence, you speak their language, but you laugh at them when they're goose-stepping down the street and it takes away their power. So I'm, I'm suggesting that the Senate send in Amy Schumer and Chris Rock <laughs> and uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. Thank you. Okay, I agree. Let's send all those people over to ISIS. <laughs> but, but, but really, I don't agree because that's intensely stupid. Okay, the idea that if, if, if Hitler hadn't gotten rid of the Dadaists and the Surrealists, they would have taken him down. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure that he was deeply worried about Picasso and his two-dimensional boobies. I'm sure that that's, that's exactly what, what Hitler was worried about mostly. The, the idiocy of the people in the arts and the self-centeredness of some of the people in the arts that what we do is what truly matters. It doesn't. Okay, it does, I'm sorry, but you're... You're frivolous. Okay, you, you are. In the end, you're not fixing a toilet. In the end, you're not making a bomb. In the end, you are not generating products that people... You, you are there for enjoyment, and enjoyment isn't frivolous. Enjoyment is what makes life beautiful, but art is for making life beautiful. Com comedians are for making life fun, right? But they don't have a lot to say when it comes time to, to kill the guys who are chopping the heads off children. Right? They really don't have a lot to do with that. ISIS is not undercut by Amy Schumer making jokes about ISIS. ISIS uses Amy Schumer and her ilk for recruitment. They say, look at this decadent West and this decadent West that has women who just make vagina jokes all day long. And, and, and do you want your women to be like that? I mean, they're sexist, right? Do you want your women to be like that? Do you want your daughters to be like that? We have to fight these people, wipe them off the face of the earth. Look at any of their videos. We've looked at their videos. They talk about the so-called decadence of the West. They use that as their opposition. The idea that we send Chris Rock and Amy Schumer to fight ISIS, I mean, just the utter self-centeredness, the, the narcissism of, of people like Bono. Well, if we just mock them, then that would, if we just mock them, then that, that'll fix, no, no, that won't fix anything. It turns out that you mock a terrorist, the terrorist might be slightly more frustrated than he was yesterday. You bomb a terrorist and he's slightly more dead than he was yesterday. And that seems to me a significantly better solution. So Bono, if he actually wanted to be productive, wanted to do something useful, Bono could throw the weight of his personality behind things like more military intervention to save people or being killed by ISIS, right? That would actually be useful because he could use the power of his persona to push actual functional policy. But that's not what these people do. These are the same sorts of people who get together and say, okay, we're going to heal world poverty. We're going to get together with Michael Jackson. We're going to heal world poverty by singing, we are the world. And it'll be just, it'll be, oh, we'll climb trees together. Oh, and and it'll, be, it'll be amazing. No, you won't heal world poverty. What healed world poverty, it turned out, was capitalism, the system that most of the celebrities singing, we are the people. And we are the world that, that those people were attempting to quash. Okay, so that's, that's stupid also. Final stupid point. Okay, final thing I hate. So, yesterday we talked at length about Hillary Clinton and Bill de Blasio telling racist jokes. This was their thing. They told racist joke, and the media laughed it off. Oh, oh, oh Hillary being a racist. Ah, who cares? She's a lefty. Let's pretend it never happened. So, now the Daily Show is making fun of, of Hillary Clinton. So, you know, yesterday I was ripping on Hillary, too. Here's the Daily Show making fun of Hillary Clinton for doing a black joke, and... Here again is a bizarre tableau of eight-foot-tall, gargantuan communist Bill de Blasio hovering over yellow-clad Mao figure Hillary Clinton standing next to a black guy dressed like Alexander Hamilton. 
And no, it's not Halloween. This actually happened. So here is what happened that, that generated all the controversy. And in The Daily Show, Trevor Noah, who has been named, he's been crowned, actually, the least funny human being on planet Earth. He, here is him commenting on it. Cautious politician time. <laughs> I, I've been there. Oh, I get it. I get it. You see, the joke is Bill de Blasio saying he's late, like black people always are, and Hillary saying she doesn't want to be president. Oh, I get it. Why would you do this, Hillary? This should be so easy. Just don't say the things that will lose you the votes. You know you're not a good joke teller, and you're in the midst of a controversy involving comments about black people, and still you choose to make that joke? That's like if the governor of Michigan was going around Flint telling water jokes, just like, I'll have a Mountain Dew. I'm trying to stay healthy. Ha <laughs> <laughs> No! But you, but you know what? In Hillary's defense, though, whoever put that video together didn't help her much, because everybody knows when you're doing this kind of material, you gotta cut away to the black people in the crowd to show that they aren't offended. Uh, sort of like this. Sorry, Hillary. I was running on CP time. It's not, I don't, I don't like jokes like that, though. It's not funny. Cautious politician time. <laughs> oh, damn! That's how you do it. Uh, when you're saying things that make black people laugh, it's impossible to look bad. That's how it works. Now, I, I, I can see how people would be saying, hey, Trevor, Hillary Clinton's up there with a black actor who's obviously signed off on the joke, and she's there with Bill de Blasio, who has a black wife and kids, so how could they be racist? And I agree with you. They're probably not racist. They're not racist, right? They just got too comfortable. Okay, see, so let me, let me can we cut it off? So, okay, so they got too comfortable. And this is, this is how the left plays this. They're not racist. If Ted Cruz told the same joke, he's a racist. But Hillary tells it she's not a racist. So that's what I commented on yesterday. But I will point this out. There's a whole group of leftists, people in the black community, who are getting really, really upset about this particular joke. This joke is just the end of the world. It's so terrible. It's a racist joke. Hey, not all racist jokes are created equal. Some are more offensive and some are less offensive. And anybody who thinks that this is a more offensive black people joke has never heard a truly offensive and horrifying racist joke. And by the way, it, it, one, of the, one of the things I think we need to get rid of is this, this particular double standard where if you tell a joke but you're of the identity, then no one else can tell the joke because that it, it, it creates awkward. So so Barack, here's Barack Obama telling a black people joke about black people being late, and no one cares. I mean, so Barack Obama, apparently, he, he did it, you know, himself. And, uh, and I, I don't know if we have the tape of it, but here's, here's what he said. Back in 2007, he said the same thing. He said, I want to apologize for being a little bit late, but you guys keep on asking whether I'm black enough. That's right. So I figured I'd stroll in about 10 minutes after the deadline. Right? So he made the same joke, exact same joke, but he's not a racist because he's black. But if Hillary makes the joke, then she's a racist because she, here, here's Obama telling the joke. I want to apologize uh, for being a little bit late, but uh, you guys keep on asking whether I'm black enough. <laughs> and he gets away with that because he's a black guy. Okay, so is the joke that bad? Is the joke that bad? Maybe it's still a racist joke because a white lady told it. But is it, is it that bad a joke? No, it's not that bad a joke. Everybody needs to like calm down just a little bit. You know, the media need to recognize that a racist joke is, in fact, a racist joke. But by the same token, I can tell you that the really racist jokes, the really bad ones, even Obama wouldn't be telling those, right? Black people don't tell those jokes, right? There's a whole group of Jewish jokes that I'll tell, but there's a certain point beyond which I won't go because the joke is not funny. It's actually just gross and offensive and stereotypical. So let's not lose our sense of humor in this election, folks, just for the sake of, of 
you know, political attacks or political correctness. Let's let's not lose all of our sense of humor here. It's a stupid joke. You shouldn't have told it, but let's not lose our sense. Because honestly, if we have no sense of humor about this election, my God. I mean, if we lose our sense of humor about this particular election, we'll have nothing left. We'll have nothing left except the darkness and the misery and the terror. And on that happy note, we'll see you tomorrow. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. 'll we'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.